Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 273. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today I'm joined by Sebastian Brochet from Yoga BJJ. How's it going, Sebastian? It's going great. My kids are like kids usually are at this time of the year, coughing and, uh, and struggling to sleep. But my wife is on duty now, so I'm all good. <laughs> Sounds about right. I also have the same issue constantly. I think people who don't have kids just don't understand. I was talking to someone at work recently and they said to me, because my kid had gotten sick again, and this person at work said, wow, Steve, your kid gets sick a lot. And I had to explain that's because she's a kid. That's just what happens. They get sick like every month. It's unbelievable. And so if you are a germaphobe, you probably want to think twice before having kids because holy smokes, so you're going to be getting a lot of colds, a lot of weird bugs going around the house all the time. I talked to another parent a month ago and she said, before I had a kid, I didn't understand what time was. Now I understand what time is because I don't have any. <laughs> you know what? I feel that 100%. I was just talking to my brother yesterday about how, you know, you remember before we had kids, if you wanted to go out and do something, you could just do it. You could just go out, leave the house and just go do something. And it wasn't a big deal. And you could do what you wanted when you wanted, because holy smokes, when you've got a kid, everything is a big procession. It's like just going to the mall is like packing a caravan and you got to plan a whole day around it. I saw a meme on uh, Instagram today. It was a picture of seven adults. And she said, I had five kids under five years. And I wish someone showed me a picture like this 20 years ago. And it was just a bunch of people sitting at the dinner table talking. And she's like, if I knew when everybody was throwing food around the floor, nobody wanted to eat, like maybe I would have had some hope <laughs> for those first 10 years. <laughs> for me, it feels like as unlikely as uh, the flat earth theory that that will ever happen at this point, because having a meal together is just uh, an outrageous idea. Yeah, it's like constant survival mode. You're just trying to shovel food into the kids and get them to bed. If you're <laughs> lucky, you might be able to scarf something down in 30 seconds when it's, you know, 10 minutes to midnight. You might finally get a chance to eat. All right. And it's going to be leftover baby food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think at this point, about half of my dinner is stuff that my kid didn't finish. So I just kind of wind up eating whatever she's left over. So the theme for today is BJ and family, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'd actually love to do that. But believe it or not, this is not a podcast about children. This is a podcast about jujitsu. And that's why you're here, man. I know who you are. I'm guessing a lot of the listeners know who you are. But of course, probably the thing you're most famous for is yoga for BJJ. 
why don't you give yourself a quick introduction and tell everyone what you're all about and also what yoga for BJJ is all about. Yeah, I found judo by being thrown into it at age seven. My mom was probably had enough and it was a great fit. I did skateboarding and judo my whole youth and it really shaped who I was. And then I realized at age 22, more or less, that I hadn't been doing judo. I was doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu in the wrong sport. So it took me about a week to switch over and then there was no way back. I loved Nevasa, that uh, ground game is called in judo. And when I saw that there is a completely different sport, it's the same sport, but the rules are just so favorable for the ground game. I loved it. And it took me five, six years to learn the, the rule difference because I was used to turning my back and that's a really bad idea in jiu-jitsu. And yeah, I love jiu-jitsu so much. And I really felt that, you know, the absence makes the heart grow fonder. I really felt that during COVID because Norway was shut down for two years and I couldn't train at all. And that I really suffered mentally from not being able to train that I, something that I did for over 30 years. And now that I'm back and the kids are in kindergarten and I can actually train like once or twice a week, I really feel how super important it is for me. And really my passion is to try to scale up the sport in whatever way I can so that more people can access it. For me, it's not enough that one person out of a thousand become a black belt or, you know, 90% of white belts quit before blue belt. For me, that's a failure on our part. You know, everybody in the sport are failing to give people the opportunity to fall in love with the sport. So I'm trying to find different ways to reach that goal of making jiu-jitsu maybe five times bigger what it is today. And that's going to be my goal for the next 10 to 20 years. Amazing, man. And of course, you're also the creator of Yoga for BJJ, probably one of the uh, marquee products of its type in the sport. I know so many people who use it as a service. Maybe plug it just quickly. I mean, we'll talk about it at the end, I'm sure. But tell us a little bit about what it's all about. I think my story is, uh, you know, could be anyone's story. I was 26 and I was spent. I had herniated discs starting from my <laughs> from my butt all the way up to my neck. And uh, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't really work. I could train and that I did. But it really didn't make my spine better from doing jiu-jitsu. As you don't have to imagine, you know that... If you train jiu-jitsu a lot, you're going to have some problems in your knees, shoulders, back, or all of them. Uh, so I was basically done at 26. And I'm like, okay, should I stop doing the sport I love? I was really in, in a dilemma. And then I met a very beautiful woman and she said, you should do yoga. And I didn't say yes immediately, but eventually I said, okay. And I did it for a year. And then I was in better shape at age 27 than when I was 18. How? Because I got access to my whole strength, not just, you know, I was usually using my arms to do the arms work and my legs to do the legs work. But when you do stuff like side plank and transitioning from side plank into, you know, these tricky balancing yoga positions, that doesn't really require insane flexibility, but it requires precise motor control and body awareness and proprioception and all those fancy terms. When you do not just sitting on your butt and uh, chanting om, 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 when you actually do a full-on yoga class, it feels like jiu-jitsu. It feels like you're fighting an opponent, but you're never getting choked, and you have to struggle with balance, you have to struggle with focus. Everything that's part of a flow role, you can actually do with yourself when you do like a full-on yoga class is not just stretching for flexibility it's everything that we need when we're sparring when we're passing the guard 
you can probably find 10, 15 yoga positions and the transitions between them that help you build the stability and strength and the awareness and the precision that you need in order to do a perfect knee slide that can be learned in yoga positions. So it was just mind-blowing to me how we didn't do this. So the whole product of Yoga for BJJ, the whole platform grew out of me Googling and saying yoga for BJJ and there was nothing. Nothing. I'm like, how many people are training Jiu-Jitsu in the world? 10 million? How many people have pain in their back? 10 million? <laughs> so I'm like, this is so necessary. Why haven't anybody told me that? I wish I learned this 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I wish I started with this. And some of my members on my website have been a member for 10 years. And they started with Yoga for BJ at the same time as they started Jiu-Jitsu. And now they're black belts. And they're like, I can't tell you how much easier my journey has been than the people that started at the same time. I was getting better twice as fast because the problem that I have, they say, was not that the opponent was resisting and trying to choke me out. It was that I couldn't move. My hips were locked. My knees were hurting and my lower back were stopping me from doing the, the passes or the guard play I wanted to do. It really is a secret that I wish everybody knew. It's an open secret, but... About 15,000 people have tried my service over the course of 10 years, and I wish it was a million and a half that people actually get to try it. But that's my big failure as a businessman. It's very difficult. I haven't found a way to get people to actually give it an honest try. Like try one class or try a class a day for a week. And when people do, they are like, okay, you don't need to, to sell me anything. I have drank in the Kool-Aid and I'm not doing anything else. This is really what I need in order to do jiu-jitsu for the long term. Because I think you can get away with not stretching and not doing warm-ups when you're young. And I mean like under 25, 30 years. But when you're over 30, man, your body, if you have an injury in your elbow at age 35, you're going to have that injury for a long time. And if it's a bad injury, you're going to feel it for the rest of your life. Unless you actively, proactively do something to prevent it and, you know, fix it. It's not just enough to, to stretch five times. You need to make it a habit just like i usually say like if you want dental health if you want white teeth you can just brush your teeth three times a year you need to do it a little bit every day so that's the consistency that people are lacking and just lack of education i know some of the best bjj players in the world they don't warm up and i'm like that's so goddamn bad even if you can get away with it because jiu-jitsu is absolutely amazing 99 people out of 100 for them, it's not, they're not that amazing. They can't get away with it. They need a proper warm up. And I don't mean run in circles with high knees and do some push ups for 10 minutes. That's not a warm up. In Scandinavia, it is because then the academy is so cold, you actually need to literally warm up. But your joints, your neck, your elbows, your shoulders, everything needs a real proper 15, 20, 25 minute warm up in order to not get injured. I think we really need to educate ourselves and raise the bar in that matter. Absolutely. I mean, I have been a big fan of yoga for a very long time. Jiu-jitsu is my number one go-to physical activity. But honestly, you know, jiu-jitsu, I think everyone should try it. But I also accept that there are going to be a lot of people who try jiu-jitsu and maybe they bounce off of it and they don't like it or it's just really not for them. But yoga, I think, is is really for everyone. Yoga is maybe the closest thing I've ever seen to a perfect physical activity. It's super accessible works for everyone. 
It's kind of just universally good for you. You can do it at any age. It doesn't matter how old or young or athletic or unathletic you are. It doesn't require really any serious equipment at all to get a good workout in. It's low impact. And if you're a grappler, there's functional yoga you can do that will directly benefit your jiu-jitsu, which is one of the things I love about your platform. It's really the only one I'm aware of where it's specifically targeted to making your jiu-jitsu better and allowing you to grapple with more longevity and more safety, which I think is so important to the sport. Yeah, I don't think the sport has much value for someone over the course of five years. If you're going to do jiu-jitsu for five years and then stop, I don't think you will have much benefit from that 25 years later. The sport really only has a value when you can do it for life. And the way it's practiced today, most people can't imagine doing jiu-jitsu at age 65 or even 55 because they're spent after 10, 15. When you have your black belt, this is what I see in my you know, non-scientific uh, biased view. Um, I see people quit after they get a black belt. Not many people continue. They get kids and they have other you know, responsibilities, but they kind of phase out after black belt maybe stay for a few years, but they don't really train like they used to. And I think that's mainly because of injuries. It's not worth it. When you had your fourth knee operation and your third shoulder pop, it's like, I just want to feel good. I want to be able to jog to work or whatever. And jiu-jitsu, it's just too hard. And that's the reason I quit judo, because judo was goddamn hard. Most people stopped judo before 30. And jiu-jitsu is not that less harder than judo. It's just that we have less impact because we don't get thrown so much. You can pull guard, but still the joints, the, the finger joints, and especially the shoulders and back and the knees. I even saw a meme that's so telling. It's like, normally when you're at the water cooler at work, you ask like, how's the dog or how's your wife? But a jiu-jitsu guy is always like, how's the knee? And you know that there is <laughs> everybody has a problem with the knee. And then there is nothing wrong with the knees unless you don't tap the helix. There is no, like the knee is a good joint. Why is it always injured? Because your hips are so stiff. You're so stiff. Your legs and your hips are, are not used to go into, into where it needs to go. And the people that I know that are really flexible, they're almost never injured. If everybody could do 10 minutes of yoga every day, I think 50% of all injuries would be completely avoided. Awesome. Well, I mean, we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, as we go on. I'll also put a link in the show notes to Yoga for BJJ. I definitely recommend everyone check it out if they haven't already. I'm sure most people have heard of it, but maybe just haven't taken the plunge yet. So I'll put a link in the show notes there to make it easier. But what we wanted to talk about today is actually a kind of a related topic in some ways, although it might not sound like it. Um, I'd asked you quite a while ago when we planned this out to give me an interesting concept, something that we could unpack on a podcast discussion here. And what you had proposed, and I love this idea, is position as submission. The idea of actually using a position to tap someone. This is something that coming up, I was always taught like this is never going to work at the high levels and it's a sign of mental weakness, blah, 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 blah. And man, what a load of crap that turned out to be because here in the year 2024, positional taps are very common. One of our sponsored athletes just yesterday tapped a, a black belt in competition with a position. You can absolutely tap someone with pressure if you're deliberate and good enough at it. But with that said, man, this was your topic. I'm going to turn this over to you. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on using a position as an actual submission hold. For me personally, like this is absolutely not anything new. If you look at wrestling, how it was just 50, 60 years ago, there were people tapping and they didn't have tap in wrestling. You tapped and you see some videos 
they were just tapping for 15 seconds and the referee has no idea what, <laughs> what's going on. It's just so painful that you they're just screaming and it's a nightmare. But like wrestlers really know how to pin someone and inflict a lot of pain, even though they don't really have submissions in wrestling. But for me personally, the biggest lesson I learned from a skill in yoga that's directly transferable to BJJ is a breath quality. To take really deep, good breaths really makes a difference for how big your gas tank is. Even if you have really good VO2 max and you're really strong, if you don't breathe correctly, you're probably, you know, 10 to 35, 40% less efficient than you could be. And when I was sparring with lower belts, after I learned this, uh, you know, they had this epiphany of breathing control and I train with some people. I'm like, dude, 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 you have to stop and you have to take a breath. You cannot hold your breath when we're in this position. You're effed. You have to breathe. And I said this so many times. I'm like, okay, fuck it. I'm not going to say this anymore. I'm just going to make it 10 times worse for them. The only thing I did, instead of thinking about which technique and which submission I was going to apply, I'm like, how uncomfortable of a position can I put this guy in and keep him there? Just like when I'm I'm a professional yoga teacher, I was, I've been teaching yoga for over 12 years. So I'm like, okay, when I do a yoga position where people struggle, I'm like, well, the practice is actually trying to stay in the position when you start struggling and not get out of it. So you have to stay in this weird wonky position and learn to breathe. That's the work. And I'm like, ah, I can do the same thing in jiu-jitsu. I can put them in a twisted, weird position where all they want to do is get out. And I don't have to actually do an armbar or a choke there. I can just keep them there and then put my weight on top of them. And I can even put my weight on top of their diaphragm. And then I can apply some more twisting pressure. And then suddenly people started giving me mount passes, giving me even starting tapping in the worst. I'm like, wow, this actually is fun. <laughs> and when you pressure tap someone and, you know, you have a good thing between you, you close friends, they get so pissed off. So it's like an extra added golden star. That's how it was for me. I'm like, well, if I can pressure tap someone, that's a win for me. And it's a tap. And I don't have to risk the position and go from side control to a spin to an arm bar. I can just try to stay here and see which angle I can put the most pressure on his ribs. And if he doesn't know exactly how to get out, he's going to tap. It was the path of least resistance, really, for me. Yeah, I have had similar epiphanies. And especially as I get older and more experienced, too, I've noticed I lean way more towards positional pressure than I do traditional submissions and fight ending sequences. And I think it's a common thing with jujitsu people as they get older and they slow down and they're more worried about their health. They tend to kind of focus on a slower pressure based game as opposed to the crazy flashy athletic stuff. But I remember at the earlier belts, I was very concerned about trying to get to submissions and I would always be hunting for arm bars or triangles or whatever would come up. And of course, when you get a submission, it feels great. But if you were to actually break down the stats, not that I was tracking my stats here, but if I did, I'm sure what I would probably find is 20% of the time I got the submission and 80% of the time I fucked it up and they passed my guard and squished me. Of course, you know, you don't remember those instances. You remember the, the submissions because those are exciting. 
And so if you're just so laser focused on the submission, sometimes you don't realize, you know what, these are actually maybe not as high percentage as I thought they were, because with a lot of submissions, if you screw them up, you can wind up losing the whole thing or losing position. That doesn't even get into the the safety aspect, the self-defense aspect too. You know, we think of submissions as being fight enders, but really if you get jumped by a drug addict on the street and you armbar them, you know, you really don't want to assume that just because you armbar them, that means the fight's over. It, it's really maybe not the best way to assume that you can actually end a fight outside of a competition environment. And all of this kind of added up. And I remember it got to the point, especially as I get older and I slow down, I try to focus more on being methodical, not leaving openings and getting consistent results when I'm training, making sure that if I get a good position, I can just hold that thing forever. What I found at some point was just at by putting enough pressure on people from bad positions, they would just you could feel that their spirit would kind of crumble at some point and they had just kind of mentally given up. And then at some point they would actually physically give up and they would tap. And I at first I thought, well, this is just me cheesing around. If being able to pressure tap a white or a blue belt doesn't mean anything. But then I, I noticed that this was actually starting to work on purple belts. And right now, I mean, even against pretty decent black belts, I can get a lot of pressure taps. And I realized that maybe we undersold the power of pressure positions as an actual finisher. I mean, the thing I love about a pressure position is it takes nothing for me to just hold it. You know, if I get you in an awful position, I can just hold you there all day. Doesn't have, I don't have to spend any energy whatsoever. Whereas I have to actually work if I want to try to submit you. And that means I have to leave openings and I might get countered. But if I am just holding you in Kesagatame for 30 minutes and you can't breathe, you know, that costs me nothing. And so I think that this is a very underexplored area of jujitsu. And it's cool to see that even at the high levels now, pressure-based position taps are becoming more common. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And I there is nothing I disagree with what you said. And I think let's talk about traps first. Before, I used to tire myself exhausted from being in top side control. I used to connect my hands and put so much pressure on his jaw and forward pressure that my biceps got so tired that eventually I lost the position. And this was way before I started using real pressure. But I'm like, why am I getting tired? He's the one that's supposed to get tired. So I'm fighting on top of his forearms, his frame. I'm using my biceps to pull myself down on top of his elbows. So he can do that all day and just frame with his elbows and I'm getting tired. So instead of me trying to advance the position, if I get really good in, for example, side control, which is my favorite position, if I get really good there and can put pressure on him, I have the time to wait for the reaction that I need to move forward. Be it stepping over the face with a foot or, you know, wrapping the arm for the, you know, the like the spinning armbar, but instead of spinning to the armbar, I just put my elbow between us and lay on top of his diaphragm with my elbow. So it's like a pile driver right down his. And when I do that, I'm provoking a reaction and I can set up traps. If he's pushing my face, that's exactly what I need in order to do chest lock. So when you like pressure tapping is just a sign that you're getting, becoming a master of the position. If you have back mount, you shouldn't need a rear naked choke to finish him. If you're really good with back mount and putting the hooks and getting the body triangle and just extending him, most of the time you will get the tap unless he is very experienced. I don't see anybody under blue belt level that don't tap to a body triangle where you push your hips into him 
and you have the body triangle locked right over the lower ribs and you just extend him backwards. I see people in yoga class, they do an upward facing dog for five breaths and they're dying and they have nobody putting the pressure. It's just a position on its own, but people have a really hard time extending their back backwards, extending their spine and they're tight on the front side. And when you use the body triangle and you're just extending them, that's usually how I get my taps, unless they know exactly how to defend it or they're just really badass and they don't mind the pain. But again, I think the sign that you're getting good in your positions is that you have the opportunity to tap someone, like the knee on belly. I did the knee on belly the classic way for 10 years, and then I learned how to actually do the knee on belly. And now it's either a tap or, you know, just panic mode, and they open up all their elbows, and, and there is uh, a ton of options for me to just attack or advance or create traps. So I think it's definitely something to explore. And I'm guilty of what you said too, which is when I was a purple belt, I was just hunting the submission and thinking about how cool it would look in a highlight reel if I did a spinning, flying scissor guard pass. But as you, (laughs) the data, like the more time passes, the more data starts showing itself and it's not really effective and you get tired and the risk of injury is higher. So when you slow down and, and focus on, like, I wait for myself to think about this is, okay, I've spent the better part of 20 years trying to pass the guard. And when I finally pass the guard, am I going to waste the opportunity to savor the moment for a while by f- jumping on a stupid submission? No, I'm actually going to try to enjoy being here for a brief moment and then see if I can get something done nice and slow without, you know, getting the knee in between and then I'm back in half guard. So it took me probably 60,000 trials and errors before I came to that uh, insight. But uh, yeah, that's where we are. Absolutely. I agree with that entirely. These days, for me, the most important thing in jujitsu is making the results consistent. I'd say when I was a younger person, when I was an earlier belt, my goal was get taps in the gym. At black belt now, though, I probably get less submissions in training than when I was a blue belt because I'm not directly hunting them now. What I'm doing these days is I'm trying to make my roles consistent, deliberate, and predictable. And that predictable thing is huge. You realize at some point that jujitsu is really, in a lot of ways, it's a game of probabilities. And the reason why we have these positional hierarchies, the reason why, say, mount is better than being in someone's guard is because your results are way more predictable from there. There's much more that you can do to the person and there's much less that they can do to you if you're mounted on them. And so by getting to a dominant position, you're really just setting yourself up for success. And the mistake that I would make many times as a junior belt is I'd I'd have this great position, but I'd think I want to get the tap here. And so I would go for an arm bar or something, lose the whole position because it wasn't a great arm bar. And now I'm having to fight off at the bottom and, and work my way back up. And being an older guy now, I am almost always outgunned with these younger people. They're bigger, stronger, more athletic. Most of them train more often than I do. You know, we talked about having kids. I can't train seven days a week like I used to. If I get two sessions in a week, that's a good week for me. I mean, this week I got in two sessions. That is a good week for me compared to what my regular routine is because I just can't find the time to train that much. So I'm giving up a lot of advantages But the one thing that I do have is experience and strategy behind my belt, right? So what I want to do is make sure that I can always get to a good predictable position. And when I get there, 
I never want to lose it. You know, I'll hold it for 30 minutes if I have to, and I'm only going to go for the submission if I'm basically 100% sure that it's going to happen. Whereas if there's any doubt in my mind that I'm going to get that submission, I'm not going to risk losing the position. And you bring up some great points too about how you can really just kind of break someone mentally by holding a dominant position. And, you know, it's not just about pressure. You talked about how when you were younger, you used to try to, you know, get up on your toes and drive your shoulder into their face from side control. And that's how we're all taught. We're all taught that playing these positions is about maximal physical pressure. But the one thing I realize now is there's also a form of psychological pressure, which is very powerful and maybe even more powerful than the actual physical pressure. I want to interrupt you there. It sounds like you were just done because another thing that ties really well into this is let's say I have you in side control and you fight the cross face and you, you're going to turtle. What I'm going to do then is I'm going to hook your top arm so that you can't go to turtle. But I will put you in a position where you think you can go to turtle. Almost. And if you try to come back to, to side control, I ain't going to let you. So I'm going to try to keep you in this middle ground until you start feeling like, what am I going to do? And that's, again, that's I can't tap you there, but I can exhaust you mentally. If I can put you in as many positions as possible where you don't really know where you want to go because it's either out of the ash and into the fire and there is really no good way to get out of there. Another great example is, let's say I'm doing, you're playing seated guard and I'm doing a knee slide. I'm not going to try to get you down with your shoulders to the floor because as soon as your shoulders touch the floor when I'm passing your guard, you get access to your legs and your lasso. If I can keep you seated almost halfway down on your sacrum and if you want to go down to the back, I'm not going to let you. I want to keep you seated and try to twist your spine. The reason I figure out that this is a great way to do it is when I see people in my yoga class, they do boat and half boat, which is basically just, you know, yoga sit-ups. People struggle after three. They do three reps and after five seconds, they're done. I'm like, ah, I can keep people in this middle position where they can't really generate any momentum. They can't really access their power. That's where I'm going to keep them. And if I can keep them there for 10, 15 seconds, it's both a mental win because they feel so happy to get out of that position that they will give away the guard pass. And also, you know, when I'm thinking about position as submission, instead of thinking of submission as just a checkmate, think about that when you watch a chess game and you see that black and white, you know, meter going up and down depending on who the AI thinks has the upper hand, right? I think about if I get a position where it's easy for me to stay there and it's hard for him, then every second that passes in that position, you know, tilts the meter in my favor. So instead of thinking that I'm going to get 100% and just finish the fight with a submission, it's an hourglass and the sand is just, you know, and his energy, his gas tank and his mental tank is getting lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. So instead of tapping someone right now with a submission, I can tap him over the course of a fight, 10-minute fight or a five-minute roll. Usually, my taps and my wins in competition is the last 30 seconds to 60 seconds. Like the last minute is usually when I get the tap because I drained 80% of their energy. And then even though their technique was better than me, their physique was better than me, if I can stay in a position where I feel like, you know, there is holes in his tank and, you know, I'm my tank is intact because I'm in a, my body is in such integrity 
when I'm there that I'm not exhausting my right biceps or my left leg or my, you know, my breathing is okay. And then when I hear that his breathing is bad and he's struggling, I'm like, okay, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning. And sometimes I get the tap, but for me, it's a slow tap. Position and submission is just one long tap, a 10 minute tap, basically. Yeah. You know, this is an amazing strategy for shutting down really fast, athletic, intense people. This is one of the things that I love to do. I've got some folks in my gym who are much younger than me, much more athletic, and they they train much more seriously. And a big part of their game is overwhelming with athleticism. And if I try to meet them in a one-on-one fair jujitsu athletic match, of course I'm going to lose. So what I like to do is get them into a position where their athleticism is irrelevant and then just kind of hold them there until they sort of break mentally. I mean, an example I can give is a few weeks ago, I was rolling with this guy and he was trying to go a hundred miles an hour. And I knew like, if I try to, we all know that guy. (laughs) Yeah. And I thought, you know what, if I try to match this guy, something terrible is going to happen to one of us and it's just not worth the risk. So what I did is I got him into a stack pass position, my favorite position. I got him up on his shoulders And, you know, he's trying to kick and get out of there. He probably wants to grand be backwards and escape, or he wants to do some bendy leg thing and regard or whatever. And I just don't let him. I just hold him upside down with his legs kicking in the air like an idiot. And then at some point, eventually he kind of gives up and he starts trying to let me pass. And I still don't let him. I just hold him upside down. And then at some point, it's kind of like training a puppy, right? At some point, you can see he just kind of gives up. And then he just resigns himself to the fact that this is his life now. And then I'll set him down gently and pass. And suddenly, he's a 100 times more docile than he was before. And he's way easier to deal with. And he's not trying to kill me anymore. The analogy of the puppy is like, I've seen a woman spend 90 minutes on an alpha female a German shepherd, and it took her 90 minutes until she got that, you know, that, that sigh of submission. <laughs> so that's exactly how you deal with uh, young dogs like that. And it's funny that you say that because I was that young athletic guy that just tried to overwhelm everybody with, you know, being a spastic, crazy person. And I think, you know, just the same way that when someone does a submission on you in competition, that suddenly becomes your favorite thing to do because. If it works on you, it's probably really good. That's at least what my ego tells me. So that's probably how this grew uh, into me was that I knew that the only way that people beat me was by doing that exact thing. And then I kind of adopted that strategy instead and it works really well. And that's just how, how growth happens. You see what works, especially when you're on the receiving end of something. You kind of are drawn to that and you start doing that yourself. That's one of, in my opinion, the most important reasons to visit as many gyms as possible and train with as many people as possible. Because if you're just always at your home gym, you're only going to get exposed to the same stuff over and over again. But if you go to a different place or you train with visitors or you visit somewhere else, man, you're going to see things that just catch you off guard. It's going to be almost like a totally different martial art and you just learn so much more training with people from elsewhere. I think uh, together with that is also competing. Cross training and competition probably are equally in value on how much they will do for you not to have a false uh, sense of reality. Yeah. Now, one other thing I wanted to expand on here, you mentioned earlier that sometimes when you're playing a position as submission, Sometimes you actually want to take your foot off the gas and leave openings so that the person thinks they can get out and then deny that to them. 
And that is such a, a beautiful strategy. And it kind of flies in the face of what I was taught when I started jujitsu. I remember it was always about maximal pressure. So if you've got someone inside control, you get up on your toes and you drive your shoulder into their face. But like you mentioned earlier, although that does create tremendous physical pressure against someone who's good, they're going to learn to deal with that. And they're going to learn to be calm and to be relaxed and to kind of work their way out. And you're the one on top who's who's driving into them. And that also makes you predictable because you're kind of rigid. So what I do now, and I don't have any data to prove that this is a great strategy, but I will sometimes lay off the pressure. So rather than getting up on my toes, I will play top side control on my knees, more like a classic judo pin where you're, they call it, I think the four corners pin where you got your elbows and your knees on the mat. And so then the person on the bottom they have room to move. They think they can get out. And then just every time they try, I just readjust. I squish them a little bit more and then I loosen. And then they try to get out and I readjust and then I squish them a little bit more. And you just, you give them a little bit of hope and then you take it away over and over again. And I find psychologically that's so much more powerful than if I were to just sit there and kind of squeeze as hard as I could the whole time. Yeah. I have an analogy here that fits really well. When you play poker, the moneymaker is not when you have the best hand. The moneymaker in poker is when you have the best hand and your opponent has the second best hand, but he thinks he has the best one. And in the case of side control, you want him to believe that it's a good idea to fight for the underhook. You can't just shut it down because then he will do something else. You want him to really believe getting that underhook is the best thing he can do. So you need to give him, like Danaher says, give something to get something. And what you get was when he's working on something that's a really bad idea, because you have six ways to counter that underhook in your game, right? So you want him to work that underhook and go down that route for as long as possible while you get to feel him out and you maybe you, while he's working the underhook, he's not paying attention to his other arm and you can isolate that one or you can move your pressure over to his hips, you can twist his his face with a cross face. Uh, you want him to spend as long as possible going down one route, and then the timing is always in the transition. So when he stops going for that underhook, and he hasn't established a grip on your collar or pushed your face yet, that's when you adjust and put more pressure on top of him. You put pressure right down in his diaphragm. Maybe you can spread your ribs and put your ribs right on top of his diaphragm so he you get like a, uh, like that's your reward. Whenever someone does a grunting, that's a reward that you were doing it right. Just stay there and then you will get a overreaction. And when he does an overreaction, that's when you do your next plan, which is knee over his close arm and isolating the arm or shoulder justice, where you put your shoulder not on his jawline, but on his actual uh, Adam's apple, like his throat. And then you're going to have a super reaction. And then he forgot completely about getting the underhook. And then you take a super underhook. And when you have the super underhook, then you put a knee on belly. And you base on your elbows. And you put the knee on belly right in his diaphragm again. And then you're going to get a... Uh, and he's going to turn to his side. And when he turns to his side, that's when you straighten your arms and roll him over and do like a, someone called it the bolt cutter, where you just basically straighten your arms and twist them, and it's like a chest lock. When he does that, then you go back, and then you have a circle of three or four or five positions where he's basically forced to go to the next one and to the next one, because you're only giving him one option, and it's always difficult, but he still thinks it's the best thing to do. So every time he pushes your face, 
you have a response and you let him push it for as long as possible. And then you do something nasty back to him. So he stops that. So like when we talk about positional submission, people might think that it's about being static and lazy. But for me, I feel like I am extremely mobile and agile with what I do. But the goal for me is always to get him to suffer as much as possible. That's the goal of the sport is for your opponent to suffer so much that they tap. And doing an armbar at cross collar choke is not necessarily the best way to do that. For me, it's playing my side controller where I love to be. And if he gives me the mount, I will take the mount. But I'm not going to struggle for it. I'm going to make him struggle right here and now until he exhausted all his options and he turns and gives his back or gives the mount or gives easy submission like a Americana or a north-south choke or whatever it is. But I have four or five positions, sub-positions inside side control that I move and cycle between. And that's really where I live and, and thrive. Amazing, amazing. We have a friend of the show, Gant Grimes. He's a black belt instructor out of Texas, um, and he's been on the podcast before. And something that he said, which just, I absolutely love this quote. He said, good jujitsu is like a bad marriage. You want to know what makes them happy, and then you want to take it away from them. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly it. It's so true because I think when people trained, they get so focused on what they want to do. You know, I want to pass. I want to mount. I want to arm bar. That's all well and good, but it's more powerful to think about jujitsu from the other person's perspective and then just not let them have what they want. The real flex is when you give them a window so they think they can get what they want and then you just don't let them have it. And then you just do that over and over and over again. And, you know, a common argument that people will make about this is they might say, well, Steve, This all sounds well and good, but what about in competition where there's a clock and there's points and all of this? You you can't do this in competition, people might say. And I would say you, you absolutely can. You just have to be smart about it and you have to understand the rules. One of the most common examples of this is when you are passing someone's guard, you pass, and then you let them reestablish a really weak quarter guard, and then you just pass again. And then you get extra points. Yeah, I've seen that live, and that's really the nicest trap I've seen. I've seen it work on the best people in the world. I remember JT Torres fighting a a friend. My friend was really good. He was in the world championship, and I just see him play, pass, get the three points, and then he puts his foot back, and then he passes to mount another seven points. I'm like, oh, God, he should not have have grabbed that foot, but how can you not? When you feel the foot and you just want to get out of there, but you didn't pummel the arms first, that takes 10, 15 years of experience to know that. But yeah, that's really the way to play it. And I love that. Find out what they want and take it away from them. And and keeping them in a... And still giving them hope. (laughs) That's probably it too. That's a sign of a failed marriage. Just keep them having hope that it might get better, but it won't. (laughs) Of course, no one's going to stay in a marriage if there's no hope, right? You always stay in the bad marriage because you think there's a chance you might be able to get it back to where you want it to go. But no, the goal here is you give them that little hope and then you just crush it over and over again until eventually you break them mentally. I mean, look, breaking people physically... Physical pressure is very powerful, but breaking people psychologically, very hard to come back from that halfway through a role. I wonder what a person that hasn't trained jiu-jitsu, but I've studied psychology would say about that sentence. (laughs) (laughs) They'd probably say we're all in like toxic codependent relationships or something. (laughs) And we love it. 
Yeah. We keep coming back at it. But you know, when people talk about how jujitsu makes you tougher and teaches you resilience, I honestly think that's where the real power is in terms of making you mentally tougher. It's not about, do you know how to escape an arm bar? It's about when someone is doing this bullshit to you, where they're trying to break you psychologically, can you maintain your composure long enough to recover or do you fall apart? And that to me is the most interesting part of jujitsu because it's all mental. It's all mental. I have a friend we talked the other week and I can't tap him. Like I got a full on rear naked choke and I, I wanted to rip his head off and he wouldn't tap. And then we talked about it afterwards and like he trained for as long as me, like uh, to 600 years. And he's like, there are no bad positions. If you have a rear naked choke, then I just need to know what to do. And I can't just be a pussy and tap out. I need to know what to do. And I can't just give you the, and his neck is not necessarily stronger than anyone else's neck, but he's just learned to endure the suffering so much. And he knows exactly how to turn enough to be able to get some air. He doesn't even think about it like, oh shit. I'm going to get tapped out. Oh, this is a bad position. Oh, he passed my guard. If I pass his guard, he's like, oh, well, you passed my guard. Now you have to get the mount. Good luck. And when you have that mindset that there are no bad positions, that's going to be easily transferable to there are no bad days. Just because it's Monday doesn't mean it's a bad day. It's just a Monday. And okay, I got fired. So what? It's very hard to break a person like that. And he didn't learn this in school. He learned this on the jiu-jitsu mat. That's probably the most valuable lesson you can ever learn. There is nothing bad. Even if you pass my guard and you have your knee in my face, so what? That's like the ultimate expression of stoicism, right? That's what we can all strive for, that nothing can break you. I'm unbreakable. Even if you rip my head off, I'm just going to try to get out until I can't and I fall asleep or I tap and not be broken mentally. That's really the lesson jiu-jitsu can teach us. And I guess the other thing too about using positions in this manner is, and I can't prove this, I might be wrong, but it really feels to me like using positions in this manner can help facilitate safety on the mats. And the reason I say this is because if you are comfortable just holding a person in an uncomfortable position, you don't have to worry about whether you're over cranking that heel hook or overextending that arm. You have full control of the situation. Now that said, There are people who don't do this properly and they can be out of control. So as an example, the stack pass, right? There are people out there who will try to just dump you on your neck. And that's not what I'm talking about here. That's just dangerous. But if you hold a person at kind of like a 45 degree angle, so they're more on their shoulders, but you just force them to keep their legs stuck up in the air and you just hold them upside down. I mean, you do that long enough. And even if you're not physically hurting them, eventually the fight is just going to grind to a halt and they're going to have to give up one way or the other. And I personally feel like there might be an argument to be made and I may be wrong, but there might be an argument to be made that that could facilitate safety rather than trying to get into like a toehold shootout to see who taps first. Yeah. That said something that I completely agree with, which is emphasize control over speed. And speed is usually the killer in when you're driving a car. If you drive 20 miles per hour, you're not going to die. But if you drive 120, you're going to die. So the faster you go in jiu-jitsu, the more injuries you will cause and the more injuries you will have. That's easy. But I think two other things that everybody hates end-of-class speeches, right? I think the end-of-class speech should be always be held right before sparring. And the speech should always be the same. Remember to take care of each other. No yanking, no cranking. Let's go. Because when you yank, I have a friend, he ripped 
someone's pectoral. He ripped his chest muscle and he had to take a $5,000 operation. And this was in Europe where we're covered with health insurance. And this was like a year of his salary. Just because he wanted to yank the armbar. And it wasn't really a bad, like they were good friends and he was just resisting and he was, you know, tugging at it and yanking it. And I'm like, bro, you're better than that. You don't need to yank it. If someone is defending the armbar so hard that you can't push it out, take the goddamn back and do a body triangle instead. Never yank. You have no business yanking. Don't. (laughs) There are a hundred other ways to go about it and yanking and cranking. Why are you doing it? Because you don't know what else to do. It's just a sign. If you're at yanking or cranking, probably you don't know, but the other guy knows. So every time you find yourself that you yanked or cranked, figure out how to do it better and find an alternative route. And I would love if teachers always said that before sparring because it would save many necks and knees and shoulders and whatnot. What do you think about that? 100%. I mean, that's exactly what we've been talking about this whole time and how especially junior people tend to get too excited and too focused on the submission. I mean, look, if you're on the mats and someone is defending an arm bar really well, if the only thing you can think about from that position is to just yank the arm as hard as you possibly can, first of all, you're creating risk. You risk hurting your friends. But also on top of that, you're not making your jujitsu any better, right? You're letting your ego control your decisions because you want to get a tap on the mats in training where it doesn't matter. You're not going to make your jujitsu better because you're not working on your technique. What I have found is if I'm ever in that position where I feel like I really want to yank this or I really want to crank this because I want to get the tap, I try to use that as a mental trigger to realize that there's an opportunity to learn here. And rather than trying to yank harder, I should figure out what could I be doing differently here to tighten this up. And maybe that means abandoning the submission. Maybe me going for that arm bar isn't the most sensible thing to do because the person's defending it so well. Um, As an example, if I try a mounted arm bar on someone and I fall off to the side and at some point I just feel like I just don't think I'm going to get this, I'm not going to yank on their arm because one of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to get it and hurt them or I'm going to lose the position and wind up on bottom. So what I'll do in that situation where I try to armbar someone from mount, I kind of fall off to the side and I just feel like I'm not feeling it. It's not working. I'll just get back up and go back up to mount again and try to S mount them and tighten the position harder and harder. And then eventually at some point, if I'm playing that position properly, their arm is just going to pop up and be exposed. And then you just grab it and it's easy, right? It's a much easier submission that way. And it's safer for everyone. Yeah, I'm reminded of a guy from Germany called Wolfgang. He's been living in Sweden for 60 years and training judo for 50 out of them. And he used to say when he was the national coach of judo in Sweden, he said, Matthias, you have strength judo, but you're not strong. (laughs) That was a friend who was really young at the time. And like it was said in a friendly manner, but I think that's where it is. If you're yanking, it's that you think, maybe you think to yourself that you should be strong enough to get this grip off. And when you're struggling with your own ego there and realizing you're not strong enough, then you kind of, yes, I am. And then you kind of have that inner battle of, yeah, I'm going to win this stupid fucking fight that I created for myself and break that goddamn grip. And that's when you start yanking. So yeah, but teaching young people to introspect is probably a hard sell. Uh, but uh, definitely for us that have, have had many of our arms yanked and yanked many arms, we finally came to that conclusion. But it's definitely something for coaches out there to constantly remind that if you're yanking or cranking, 
come, let's figure out what you can do instead. And I think that armbar going to mount is one option, but also if he's so tight with the arms that you can't get any angle, it means he's, he tightened up so much that he's exposing his back. So when I'm in an armbar position, I make sure that I have the figure four grip and then I roll him over and take the back mount with a body triangle. And usually that's more than enough for him to open up and then I can go back to the armbar. If he's that tight, when you go up to a mount, you can do double underhooks and then just do mother's milk and smash him and get your chest in his face. And then he's going to forget about those arms and then you can try again. I was going to say the reason why I like to go back to mount instead of taking the back is because I'm an asshole and I like to just smother people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 but it's, it's the right, it's still the right thing to do. Being an asshole is a point of view and it's usually not from, they think you're an asshole because you're smothering them, but they're, from my point of view, they're letting me smothering them. So I'm trying to teach them a lesson and really like when people train with me, like I've, uh, they say in Sweden that a loved child has many names and I've been called many names when I'm training with people, but I see it as my duty to give them as much whooping as possible in a loving kind of way. You know, I'm never trying to actually hurt anybody. I want to inflict maximum pain with no damage. And it's the best gift I can give them because even though they goddamn hate me while we're training. Afterwards, they're giving me hugs and smiles and like, come back to train. Like, that's really what jiu-jitsu is about, murdering each other and being able to do it tomorrow as well. So the more you can brutalize someone, the better, as long as they're smiling afterwards. For example, I I had a long discussion. (laughs) Like, one of my most controversial posts on Instagram last year was, when you're rolling with girls, especially girls that are smaller than you, don't just smash pass. You know, be nice and play guard and, you know, fight really hard and give them proper resistance. Don't just be a wet noodle, but you don't have to smash the smaller girls. And people went absolutely crazy. I have like 500 comments and people were like, ah, you're a man. You should not talk. I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) It's not like if I'm not smashing this girl that nobody will ever put pressure on her. She can fight really hard with guys her size or with girls. You can kind of adjust based on who you roll with. And that's really a missing skill in many cases. I don't know if we should go down that route, but... I would say that that's an important thing to consider when you're talking about pressure positions, is that you do have to be somewhat aware of your opponent and their level and what they're ready for. There are people who get into jujitsu because they came in and experienced trauma elsewhere in their life and they want to learn to defend themselves. And there's also people who... Maybe they are tough as nails and they want to be a badass world champion, but they've only been training for two weeks. And so they're not kind of emotionally ready to deal with that kind of pressure. And so I only want to play this kind of positional dominance on someone if I know that psychologically they're ready for it and it's good for them. So I'm not going to grab like the day one white belt and try to murder them with something like this. But if once they've trained for a while and they've built up some confidence and I can tell that, look, they're comfortable with that level of discomfort, that's when I'm more than happy to apply it. And it doesn't matter to me if it's a a guy or a girl. It really depends on, is this someone who is mentally ready for this? Because the last thing I want, you know, you talked about how earlier in this episode, 
one of the big failings of jujitsu is the churn rate. You know, something like it feels like 99% of people quit, right? It's ridiculous. And we should all be very embarrassed about that. And so I always want to keep in mind that these things, we can talk about them as being very effective training methods and very effective tools, but you also have to remember that if someone is coming in and they're brand new and they're already scared shitless because jujitsu is intimidating, it's probably not the time to do something like that to them. But one day, if that person stays around, they're going to get their blue belt or their purple belt. And then absolutely, I mean, I train with a lot of women who are way smaller than me and I will absolutely try to crush them and stack them upside down and stuff because I know that if I don't do that, they're going to fucking kill me, <laughs> right? But I would never take that approach with someone who's just walked in the gym and I, I don't know them well enough to know where they, what their comfort level is. I don't know if they've got neck problems or something like that. So again, the big beauty of using positional dominance this way is you as the attacker have the control. You can put as much or as little pressure on the other person as you want. And I would say that as a, especially as a senior person on the mat, you want to be cognizant of what the other person's level is and give them what they're ready for. And just be mindful of the fact that some people might not be ready to have like a, a full smother game applied to them quite at that moment. Right. Talking about that, I think one of the best things we can do in jiu-jitsu is turning jiu-jitsu into fight club. And what I mean by that is the first rule of fight club is you don't talk about fight club. And what I mean with that is that the really hard training should be behind locked doors. We don't need to post on Instagram when we're killing each other. We don't need to send that impression that jiu-jitsu is dangerous and only for the tough guys. Because only one person out of a hundred is actually tough, probably less. We want those other 99 people to be able to come to jiu-jitsu and enjoy it for years and years and bring their families and bring their grandma to jiu-jitsu. That's the way to make a lot of money and that's the way to make the sport grow. Look at soccer, how big it is. It's not just, you know, the best people in the world that train soccer. Everybody trains soccer because it's fun and they manage to make the sport something for everybody. And that's why we should kill each other behind locked doors where nobody could see. 10 a.m. competition class, we murder each other and we yank and we crank and we try to penalize each other and we do finishers like position and submission, but we keep that to ourselves. I think that's a long-term good strategy. Absolutely. Well, man, Sebastian, this is a fantastic chat. Anything else you want to add on this topic before we tie this one up? I want to make a teaser because I really hope you enjoy this so much that I get to come back. And something I'd like to talk to is education and jiu-jitsu and how there is no course in the university that I can take right now that makes me a good jiu-jitsu instructor. And there is no online course or otherwise that I can take to become a certified jiu-jitsu teacher. That's something I would love to talk to you about. I would absolutely love to dig into that. I mean, I think you and your work have been so essential in growing aspects of the sport. And I know this is something that you're very passionate about. So yeah, let's definitely get that on the calendar. I'd love to have you back and talk about jujitsu education and, and how we can grow this sport so that it's not just this weird little backwater combat sport. But like you said, I would love to get to the point one day where jujitsu is just something that they teach in high schools and it's just completely normal and integrated with part of life. And people don't look at it like some weird deviant offshoot of the UFC, but they understand this is a beautiful sport, right? If done properly, it's not always about just trying to murder each other. I mean, I'm sure you would agree now that, you know, we've been around in the sport for so long. The thing about jujitsu that has really changed my life is the practice, the people that I have met and the self-development, the actual combat skills. 
I never wound up using those. You know, I I got into this for self-defense. That's never materialized. I've never had to defend myself. But the things I've learned about myself and the people that I've met through jujitsu and the relationships I've built, that's where the real power of the sport is, in my opinion. Much like, and I think you could say the same with other sports like soccer, right? I think a big part of what makes soccer so powerful is how easy it is to adopt and how universal a language it is and how it can bring people together. I'd love to see jujitsu grow into something like that too. Yeah. And uh, I think one last thing here is I talked to another friend and he said that there are a few things where I go through as many different emotions in five minutes as when I have a good sparring round. And I'm like, yeah, that's therapeutic. If you're on your phone the whole day and then you go through, you know, six huge different emotional swings in five minutes, that's probably really healthy for you. And I believe the time that we're going to face now in humanity's history is going to be really, really, really intense for the next five, 20 years. And I think an outlet like jiu-jitsu with the addition of some yoga and introspection and relaxation is going to be a lifeline for so many people. So I really hope we can take jiu-jitsu and turn it into something for everybody. 100%, man. Well, let's plug some stuff. We talked about yoga for BJJ. Again, I highly recommend people sign up for it. If people want to sign up for Yoga for BJJ, where do they go and how do they do that? Go to go download the app Yoga for BJJ in the App Store or Google Play. If you don't want to pay, go to YouTube and just find a class and do the class for three weeks. Do it every day for three weeks, 10, 15, 20 minutes instead of running in circles when you warm up. There are four times in the day when you can do it morning or when you get out of bed before you go to bed or before or after training. Any of those are great. If you can do 10 minutes for each, then 40 minutes every day is going to change your life forever. But get consistent. Even if you just do three minutes a day, get consistent because that's when that's when you see the real change. Yeah, that's one of the beautiful things about yoga too is you can do that. I mean, with jujitsu, you can't really dabble in jujitsu and do it five minutes a day. But with yoga, you absolutely can. I mean, my wife does that every morning. She gets up and puts in like 20 minutes of yoga before she does anything else. It is an amazing practice. If you're a grappler specifically, Yoga for BJJ is an amazing product for that. And I would also say, I know that there's a lot of people who wind up having to quit jujitsu because of injuries. If you ever find yourself in that boat, one of the first things I would do is to consider looking into Yoga for BJJ as a possible option. It probably will help you a lot. Who knows? One day you might even be able to make it back on the mats too if you use something like that. So I would definitely recommend people check it out. Yeah, I forgot to say, I have a very successful online course that people love. So if you want to learn quickly, if you're also concerned about your loved ones and your teammates, then for God's sake, consider becoming an instructor. Because that instructor's course that we put online, level 1, 2, and 3, is an amazing resource. So you'll learn how to teach a proper warm-up, a proper cool-down, and you know go all the way from being absolutely not being able to touch your toes to be a qualified yoga instructor in less than three years. And we actually lowered the price a lot. So please, please check that out as well. And just go to Instagram and message me there. I'm always replying to messages myself if you will have any questions. So I would love to connect. Awesome, man. Well, like I always do, I will put those links in the show notes so that people can find the stuff. Um, again, I definitely recommend everyone at least check out the free tier. And then again, if you hey, tell you what, if anyone out there is listening, if you're a yoga for BJJ subscriber, shoot me a message. I will send you some free courses from the BJJ Mental Models Premium Library as a perk. There you go. Just because I, I really do believe in this service. Um, with that said, though, all of our stuff as well is at BJJMentalModels.com. Includes the podcast, includes the newsletter. 
Those are free resources and definitely worth your time. Beyond that, the next level is BJJ Mental Models Premium. Join that. We've got a massive, ever-growing library of jiu-jitsu audio courses on strategy, tactics, mindset, concepts. If you like the stuff that we talk about here on the podcast, but you want a more structured way to apply that to your game, that's where you can go to do that. We also have a bunch of premium podcasts hosted by really great black belts, such as uh, Emily Kwok, Joe Hannon, Drew Foster. So not just me. We have a whole podcast network there, so you get a lot more content. And then, of course, probably one of the main reasons that people would sign up is for rolling reviews. Join us at our coaching tier, and we'll have world champs like Brianna St. Marie break down your footage. It's just a real game changer. A lot of people, they just don't get a lot of face time with their instructors in classes. You know, if your instructor's busy, odds are every class, you're probably not getting more than 30 to 60 seconds of attention from them directly, right? It's a real game changer to have a high-level athlete or coach look at your rolling and give you custom tailored feedback. I don't know anyone who can do it at the price point that we do. So please do check out premium if you haven't already. All of that stuff is at bjjmentalmodels.com. Of course, I'll put a link to that and all of the yoga for BJJ stuff in the show notes as well. I'm pretty sure that you have some yoga for BJJ videos in your premium tier as well, right? Yeah, yeah, we've got a bit of cross collaboration there. I mean, I'm a big supporter of your stuff, and I know that you have been of ours. So, yeah, if you are a Yoga for BJJ subscriber, contact me. I'll give you some freebies and vice versa. But, Sebastian, man, thank you so much. This was a fantastic chat. Any closing thoughts or other things you wanted to just add before we tie this one up? No, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. And uh, it's funny how different people from different walks of life usually end up in the same spot. That's always fun to hear someone else say your thoughts out loud. That's one of the cool things about jujitsu is there does seem to be a kind of convergence. Once people have been doing this long enough, they all kind of seem to gravitate towards a similar philosophy. So thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. I'll let you go here, but you're always welcome here. We should definitely get you back on to talk about education at some point. Thank you so much. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks, man. Thanks to the listeners as well. We'll talk to you next week. Take care.